You're listening to Ping, a new podcast by APNIC, discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. If you're new to the show and are wondering what this podcast is all about, each fortnight we chat with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they are doing and insights they've gained into the well-being of the internet. For those who have been listening, welcome back and thanks for the shares, feedback and reviews. And if you've subscribed, thanks for that too. If you've been following the APNIC blog, we devoted a week of posts to Resource Public Key Infrastructure, or RPKI, earlier this month. It's something that we've done for the last two years to develop awareness of resource certification, which has become increasingly important for operators to provide assurance that routing advertisements seen in the routing system can be verified and authentic. So given that this is fresh in people's minds, we thought we'd focus on research and measurement side of RPKI in this podcast. And who better to talk about it than RPKI evangelist Job Schneiders. Job, welcome to Ping. Welcome. No, wait, that's what you say. Thank you for the welcome. (laughs) Now, for those who don't know Job, he's a massive proponent of RPKI. Just search RPKI Job, J-O-B, on Twitter, and you'll soon find out. While we're on the subject of Twitter, Job, you recently commented on how RPKI was able to limit a recent hijack attack of said platform. Can you recall for our listeners who weren't aware of the incident what exactly happened? It was an incident like like many, many other incidents that happen on a daily basis. Some entity somewhere on the internet ended up announcing that they were the destination for a certain set of IP addresses. And it turned out that they were not at all the legitimate destination, but they were squatting on Twitter's IP space. And I think this this type of incident is really a showcase for how effective RPKI-based route origin validation is in really helping against the simplistic cases of either it being a, a typo by some operator where you know they're off by one key, or uh, it being some kind of censorship attempt that uh, accidentally leaks into the, the global internet, or whatever it is. I mean, we'll, we'll never know from the BGP hijacks why they happen, and I never waste my time uh, pondering what the intentions or motivations are behind such events. But the only thing that matters is what can we do to uh, help prevent such events, or as such events happen, because we're never going to prevent typos, but what we can maybe do is dampen the damage or dampen the blast radius. And in this instance, I think that Twitter, having created RPKI ROAS uh, for that set of IP addresses, greatly helped their, their business operation because it showed to the world, hey, this is the legitimate origin. Uh, these are the maximum length values that we anticipate. And having that cryptographically signed and and distributed over the planet helps operators be decisive. Because if you receive multiple BGP announcements, which one is true? And RPKI greatly helps understand which one to pick. And I think this, this is a showcase of RPKI ROV doing exactly what it was designed to do. Indeed. Now, there's a lot to unpack in what you've just said, including terms such as ROAS, which is short for Route Origin Authorizations, and Route Origin Validation, both of which are fundamental components of RPKI, and to which I'll suggest to people not familiar with to check out the link in the show description to the RPKI at APNIC portal to learn more as we intend to dive a little deeper in this discussion. 
Coming back to which, it's a good point you make about the relevance of understanding the intentions of hijacks when you're measuring their impact and that of RPKI to limit it. So that aside, what are you measuring when it comes to such events and how do you measure the effect of things like RPKI and Internet Routing Registry information, which both seek to mitigate these events? Yeah, that's a, a fun question to, to put RPKI and IR next to each other. In my mind, somewhere in the mists of time, the internet started. I was still in diapers. I think you were too. <laughs> and at, at some point, people recognized a need for some centralized coordination about who is supposed to announce what routes in what directions and what the freaking plan is. So the Internet Routing Registry came into existence. This is about 15, 20 years ago-ish. And although it has many beautiful characteristics, it also has some, what by now in 2022, we consider offensive or rude. In There is no object security, no transport security. We have no idea uh, what the authorization uh, rule sets are of the various IR sources. It's a very complicated machine, unwieldy, so to speak. And I will note that in the last few years, all RARs and multiple third-party IR operators have made very big strides in cleaning up the IR ecosystem. But at the end of the day, we are in what I think is a transition from IR towards RPKI. And this means that not only do we need to convince all current publishers in the IR uh, to also publish in, in the RPKI, but also one by one convert all consumers of IR data to also consume RPKI data. And then we have to sort of figure out how to gracefully make IR and RPKI intersect in some way, or at least not undo each other's effects. So we have to embrace both technologies in order for us to eventually arrive at hopefully a single technology, which would be one that is anchored in cryptography. Now, Measuring differences between RPKI and IR, I think it is important to recognize that there is a very subtle difference between IR and RPKI ROAS. At first glance, IR route objects look very similar to RPKI ROAS. They both contain a prefix and they both contain an origin ASM. But the curious thing is that if you have one IR route object in your hand, that object only says something about itself. It does not say anything about any other sources of information. Uh, and from that perspective, it's like a, a medium-grade source of truth. Whereas RPKI ROAS, by definition, can be used in a procedure called origin validation. And this is a procedure described in RFC 6811 from the top of my head that came into existence way after IR route objects were invented. And the funny thing about an RPKI ROA is that if you have that one in hand and there's other potential information like a BGP route announcement or an IR route object, the RPKI ROA will supersede invalid representations of the information contained in the ROA. So if we make a hierarchy of sources of truth, RPKI is ranking above IR because of the little quirk in, in how we interpret the data. To phrase it very differently, IR for a long time was the best thing we had to create allow lists that you put into your routers. And those allow lists didn't do origin validation. But RPKI goes a step beyond. 
it allows us to do origin validation and reject routes based on the outcome of that decision-making process. So RPKI has a bit of a, a sharper edge. It's a sharper knife, but also more effective. Now, another very interesting uh, difference is that the IR over the years has only been accumulating more and more objects uh, because there never was any penalty to removing objects or leaving objects be. But even worse, if you remove an object, there, will, there could potentially be a penalty or some downside. So the incentive to clean up IR records for decades has been absent. And this means that over time, this system becomes less effective at helping us filter out bad information because the filters become wider and wider or, or sloppier and sloppier. The quality of IR somewhat suffers purely because time goes by and, and there is no cleanup. Whereas with RPKI, uh, there is a gazillion timers in the system. There is the expiration date of the CRL, the expiration date of the manifest, the expiration date of the manifest EE certificate, the expiration date of the CA that signed that EE and the CRL, and so on. The whole chain up to the trust anchor has expiration dates. So if you compare this to a carton box with milk, there's just very clear dates. Do not consume this after so-and-so date. And this helps keep the RPKI information system very relevant, current, but also concise. And I think these are interesting differences in IR and RPKI, and that, that we should also, if we attempt to measure and compare the two, we have to take into consideration these aspects. So IR is somewhat expected to continue growing because there's no expiration timers or expiry dates, and there is no incentive to, to clean it up, whereas RPKI should follow a curve that is more organically aligned with actual interest in technology at hand. And I think that one aspect to measure RPKI is to understand how bad does it hurt if you misconfigure your ROAS? Because that is a sign of ROAS being powerful. And if you configure it correctly, you enjoy some level of protection against other people's typos or, or misconfigurations. But if you yourself make the typo in the ROA and it causes damage to your business, that is, of course, terrible. I, I don't wish that upon anyone. But it also is a sign that it's worth to put time and effort into uh, creating ROAs because they actually mean something. That's a great point that while there is a lot to do to create your ROAs correctly, it's worth spending that time, otherwise you'll suffer the repercussions. Have you found in your research any particular part of this process that people are more consistently configuring incorrectly? Well, in creating ROAs, there's basically two fields where mistakes can happen. One is the origin AS, where sometimes people don't view themselves as a, the starter of the chain of BGP announcement, but sort of perceive their transit provider or upstream provider to be the start of the AS path. So you sometimes see people putting in not their own ASM, but the ASM of adjacent networks. And th that is a, a big mistake in RPK ROAS because if the wrong origin ASM is put, it, it means that the route will poorly propagate on the global internet. If they make that mistake, they'll quickly rectify it because that's like bumping your little toe into a, a bookcase. 
But then the more subtle one is the max length field. And the max length field is very hard to explain to people. I see that teachers around the world are struggling to explain to students what the purpose of the field is and what the implications are. But I see a lot of people that said, for instance, in the case of IPv4 slash 24 in the max length field, or with IPv6, something like slash 48 or 64. And in doing so, they somewhat reduced their security posture because it's a hint to potential adversarial entities on how they could circumvent the effects of the ROA. On the flip side, there is also advantages to the max length field because it allows for immediate deaggregation, which is a feature only very few uh, network operators really need. So this is very confusing with the max length field because there are some use cases for a very specific set of network operators. And the more fields there are in a form, the, the worse a form is. And uh, I think this is a field that we easily could have done without. Uh, but yeah, rectifying that through the IETF is going to be a challenge because we are now already so many years into the deployment of RPKI that it's this quirky artifact that yeah, I, I think we can only remedy this by really thinking about how the user interfaces should look like and rely on the RERs to inform uh, their constituents what the field means and, you know, when in doubt, maybe not use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, often we're looking at problems and trying to add solutions when maybe we should be subtracting things to make things simpler. If, if there was one thing in the RPKI ecosystem that I could take away, then it would be the max length field. Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Um, but in all seriousness, thanks for signposting those two aspects that people are consistently having a hard time getting right when creating their rowers. This sort of feedback is great to be able to help improve the system as a whole. So I'm sure you, like other proponents out there, are always asking people to share their feedback on the process. So we as a community can improve it and develop suitable standards through the IETF. This actually brings me to my next question about a proposal that you and your colleagues presented at the most recent IETF conference, IETF 113, uh, which introduces a new acronym to the RPKI soup, uh, DOA. Can you explain what DOA is and how it is seeking to improve RPKI? All right. What is DOA? Doha is a beautiful city in the Middle East that is worthwhile visiting, but it also means discard origin authorizations. And it is, I would say, a sibling to the ROA. The ROA is the route origin authorization, and this is used for normal BHP routing. Everyday BHP routing, the, the routes that you want in the routing system 24-7. And then Doha, its counterpart, is a cryptographic attestation in which you can describe the circumstances, rare circumstances, in which a black hole route is permitted to exist covering your IP space. And the reason we need something like DOA, I don't know if DOA is going to be it, but there is sort of a gap in the features that the RPKI framework offers. And a lot of network operators end up either not applying RPKI-based filters on black hole routes. So attaching a black hole community could circumvent routing security efforts, or they don't offer black hole route functionality to their customers because they cannot figure out how to offer it in a sane and secure way. 
in both scenarios are problematic because in both scenarios, either you, you don't get access to the black hole feature, which is something that network operators enjoy using when they are suffering uh, DDoS attacks, or the robustness of the overall network is jeopardized because applying uh, ROA-based filters to black hole routes oftentimes does not work well. So there's, there's a bit of friction. Uh, there's, there's a gap that, that I think needs addressing. So together with uh, Mikko Abramson and um, Madison, we set out to define a object type suitable to be published in the global RPKI system. And this object type is created by the address holder. So if you own a slash 24, you can create a Doan about what the circumstances are in which you'd allow parts of that slash 24 to be black holes by your adjacent networks. So in a DOA object, you can describe or specify a BGP community that you associate with the action of black holing, and you can specify the origin ASN, where the black hole request must come from, and optionally, you can specify the peer ASNs, and this means that the DOA-facilitated BGP black hole requests have one hop of, of path validation, so to speak. And this makes it suitable, for instance, to have an Internet Exchange route server propagate black hole requests because in the DOA object, you could specify that a particular Internet Exchange route server is authorized to distribute these black hole requests. And that way, others can automatically act upon that. So the DOA itself does not trigger the black hole. A DOA object merely describes if you see these parameters in a BHP update, then optionally you may start black holing. And this is all with the intention is that resource holders themselves can specify what the circumstances are. So if you, if you don't want your space to be black holed, you simply never create a DOA. Okay, so there seems to be a bit to play out in this space, so we'll keep our eyes on this. But no doubt it's important to a subset of the community. And to reiterate my previous comment, it's feedback like this from the community needing to do these sort of things that RPKI wasn't designed to allow for, which is important for the evolution of the system. Yeah, it's an iterative uh, process. This has always amazed me that like, when I was very young, very early on in my career, I thought that the tools handed down to me, like BGP, like, like IR, like here's this router from a particular vendor. I thought, this is it. These are the stones I have to bang together to, to make the fire. And it was later on that I realized that, hey, all of this is changeable. And if it doesn't meet my requirements or if it's wildly inefficient or insecure, there actually is a, a process to remedy that type of friction. And if I jump through those hoops, I solve certain problems, not just for myself, but also for all others that were either consciously or unknowingly uh, suffering from a, a particular inefficiency. Uh, so I really admire the, the foresight that the original RPKI designers had in making RPKI extensible to the degree that it is possible to propose something like DOA. They even created a, a so-called signed object template that is a document that, that helps you understand if you want to make something new, something unknown, this is how to go about it uh, to make it 
secure and robust. So I'm, I'm very excited about RPKI in this regard, because I think this is what makes the RPKI very future-proof. In the coming decades, and I, I think RPKI as a technology may really have a lifetime that, that will exceed 40, maybe even 50 years, because we can iterate on top of it, because we, we can make gap analysis to understand operational needs and, and then try to pencil those in with a solution that fits in the wider framework. Whether DOA makes it or not uh, across the finish line, that's uh, a question for six to 12 months. But the fact that a proposal like DOA can exist in this wider framework is is awesome. There we go, community. We get to hear from Joe banging his RPKI drum for the next 40 to 50 years, which I'm sure you're all looking forward to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd like to step away from the actual system itself and talk about your unique perspective of RPKI in that you run a delegated RPKI and publication point meaning you run everything, including the certificate authority, the publication server, and the repository. Now, this differs from a lot of other people who choose the hosted model, which is cheaper and easier as your local regional internet registry runs everything. Can you explain why you chose to be so hands-on and what advantages it gives you in managing your RPKI and measuring RPKI on the wider internet? Sure. Yeah, it's... uh... As, as you said, I, I run my own publication points. This is possible because RIPE NCC offers you two options to run RPKI services. On the one hand, use their uh, dashboard where you log in with your membership credentials and then you can click together uh, all the things you want. Or you configure the, the RPKI service to point towards your own server. And then you are really a master of your own fate and can publish all kinds of objects do permissionless innovation. And I, I arrived at that position because I was working on a RP implementation that I was testing all the time. And I noticed that Randy Bush ran multiple publication points. I was like, wait a second, that is very clever. That gives you unparalleled insight into the ecosystem because every RP implementation has to connect to all publication points. So I'm just going to copy what this person is doing and uh, let's see what I what I learn. And it's been a, a very exciting to sort of follow in, in his footsteps, to be in that position, to uh, have the world's relying parties connect to my web server or my rsync server, and then from there develop a better understanding of how the RPKI technology works. Uh, so my initial goal was really to to educate myself and understand how the system works by having all components of the system running uh, on my own infrastructure so I can really take a look at it from all possible angles. And as to your question, like, what is it you see? Well, this is not the best news, unfortunately. There is quite a lot of RP implementations out there that identify themselves through the HTTP user agent. And many of them also relay their version string in that user agent. And from my observations, many of them are outdated. I think almost between one third and some period of times, even up to half of the distinct RP uh, implementations connecting to my publication server are running software for which there are known security issues. And why that is, I, I have a few theories. If I compare this to other security software, like my, my web browser, if, if my web browser is has not been updated in the last 
six or seven days, my employer's login system, the single sign-on system, will simply not admit me into the, the company's infrastructure. They're like, nope. Come back when you uh, updated your software. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're quite on top of it. But no such motivation exists in the RPI ecosystem. There is no stern officer looking down at you and being like, if you want to collect these RPI objects from my publication server, you've got to run a more secure uh, version of the software. Uh, so that dynamic is absent. Then I think that there's still some immaturity in the RPKI RP ecosystem in that many companies, especially large companies, like think really big countrywide telco companies, they struggle a little bit to figure out who inside the company will run the RPKI cache validators. Is it the DNS team? Is it the routing team? Is it some IT team? Is it a sysadmin team? Is it the people that fix the printers? Uh, Like these are really big challenges for for some companies. And it really depends on what kind of department gets to own the products or the aspect of running the, the validators and what their procedures are. And some departments may not be used to the wild internet being as hostile as it is because they're more used to a commercial off-the-shelf upgrade scheme, as you'd find on, say, Juniper's or Cisco's, where a lot of larger operators upgrade that software once a year-ish. But RPKI validator software being security software that connects to untrusted publication points, they're an upgrade scheme of once every two weeks is maybe more appropriate. And that could be quite a burden for a team if they're not prepared for it. And this also goes back to how is the software packaged? Do you have to compile it from source or are there pre-built binaries distributed through, say, the Debian repositories and FreeBSD and Gen2, et cetera, et cetera? Or do you have to pull in from Git and figure out like how easy is upgrading will, will also greatly influence whether people jump to a more secure version. And with RPKI software, I think the mantra is that the most recent software version is always the best version. This is not a type of software where you kind of pick a release train and you say, well, we're going to stick on the 10 series because 11 feels too newish. I think all the RP implementers, all the RP developers ultimately have a model where the latest version is the most secure version uh, because that one contains the most progressive insights. So there is. Who runs it? What are their procedures? And there is also, do people inform themselves? Because somebody publishing a security advisory uh, somewhere on GitHub is great. But if the consumer of the software is not periodically checking that page or subscribe to alerts or subscribe to too many alerts, and for some reason didn't take note, you also might miss that there was an important update. So I think to summarize all of this, there's an awful lot of instances out there that can be exploited against the best interests of the operator running that instance. And this can range from crashing the RP to filling up the disk to even worse aspects such as uh, system compromise or using RP instances as, as part of a botnet. With some versions out there, crazy things are possible. And the timeless advice that I have for my fellow operators, make sure you run the latest version and check every month whether you're running the latest version. Always be upgrading. 
And if you're not running the latest version, you're probably in trouble. <laughs> and it's also a case of referring to the best current practices, one of which is to run two validators. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Run multiple instances in a network. And with multiple instances, I don't mean run different RPs from different vendors, because whether you want a multi-vendor or a single-vendor approach, that is, each operator will have their own preferences. But whatever you do, make sure that you run multiple instances because, yeah, you want redundancy. We run multiple DNS resolvers, multiple DNS authoritative servers, multiple NTP servers, multiple routers. And this also means run multiple validators, multiple RTR servers. Make everything at least dual, uh, but triple uh, is even better. And that will help when you need to do upgrades or if there are other transient issues uh, with the infrastructure. It is good to maintain a view on the RPKI at all times and strive to cover 100% of the time. So by using multiple validators that are geographically distributed, you can easily achieve that. There seems to be a lot of merit in choosing a delegated approach to RPKI and running your own publication server even it is to understand the fundamentals, as this seems it will help you respect it as a system that is important and warrants the time and effort. Yeah, RPK is, is a, if I look at myself, but I think at the wider community, we somewhat maybe underestimated the love and care that the RPK subsystem requires to be running smoothly along the BGP subsystem. RPK is not fire and forget. RPK is a very sharp knife, as I mentioned earlier, and this means that we can use it very productively to help clear up whether a BGP update message is invalid or not. But the price we pay to improve uh, BGP robustness is, of course, that by introducing a new subsystem, the RPKI CA plus RP subsystem, that too needs caring and attention and monitoring. And you cannot get away with installing a validator and then not paying any attention to that instance anymore. you got to make sure that it's up to date, that it's functioning as you expect it to function, that you receive alerts if it, for one reason or another, no longer is outputting any VRPs, or if the disk is full, or if the CPU has been clocked for hours. It's a system that actually needs to be operated. And and that means periodically checking in whether the system is working uh, as you hope it works. That's totally it. Though you can understand the resistance when everyone is looking to automate everything these days. However, it seems that routing security hasn't yet been able to fully adopt automation and may never, as you need that personal team to oversee the nuances of routing. Yep, for sure. Before we finish, I'd like to get your thoughts on the feasibility of BGP security as well and how that can maybe coexist with the RPKI in the future. You mean BGPSec? This is a fun one. <laughs> let's, let's start off with first emphasizing that BGPSec was light years ahead of its game when it was proposed in the IETF. If I look back at my own attitude towards BGPSec, at the time those RFCs came rolling out of the, the publisher, I was still working on ancient brocades with horrible PowerPC CPUs that would crash themselves if you'd log in with a too large SSH key. And it was so bad that we ended up disabling SSH and using Telnet for large parts of uh, my then current employer's network because the cryptographic integration of devices like that was so poor. 
So hearing that people were envisioning to sign every BGP update or every BGP update that comes into a box, uh, verify a, a chain of signatures, I was like, this can never happen. <laughs> but as years go by, it turns out that Moore's Law, uh, to some degree, can be of assistance. And we got beefier and beefier CPUs in the management blades of the big routers. Uh, there's a super big move towards software-based routing where your router or the control plane is a virtual machine on physical infrastructure that has ample RAM, lots of CPU cores. So that Moore's Law really helps a little bit with some of the scaling concerns. But as time went by, my understanding of the internet routing ecosystem and the business side of it, I came to notice that a lot of BGP sessions that are the most valuable ones, the ones you'd want to protect, are oftentimes also the BGP sessions with the highest local preference and the most traffic. So if you imagine a private interconnect between two cloud providers, you'll have hundreds of gigabits uh, per second of traffic on such a link, but back and forth across that BGP session, you'll have very little BGP states, only maybe a few hundred routes, even for the largest cloud providers. So I think that BGPSec is a great architecture. It's the most minimal approach that could have been designed to create a planetary skill, cryptographically verifiable routing graph. But when the RFCs came rolling down the printer, I don't think anybody really understood how to make it work in practice and that it was sort of a theoretical, but brilliantly thought out design on um, how to tackle the problem of path validation. Another aspect about BGPSec that I really, really like is that it does not help against route leaks. Because route leaks are sort of a subjective matter, right? Is this a violation of business rules or not? I think we need something different for route leak protection, and that's ASPA. With BGPSec, uh, it does not mingle with policy at all. So if you have a very complicated network with entities where you are both peering partners, but in some regions of the world, uh, you provide transit or maybe the other way around, any type of product that you offer as ISP BGPSec, all it does is just, it helps you understand if all the parties in the AS path are who they say they are. And then what you do with that information after you verify that everybody is who they say they are, that's up to the operators. But it also means that IXP route servers suddenly become technically verifiably trustworthy. Because for the longest time, a challenge with route servers is they are not visible in the AS path. So if there is a leak, if there's a hijack, if there's some kind of issue, you have to sort of triangulate what the black hole is that the IXP route server is, because they don't make themselves known in the path for traffic engineering reasons, which is great. But with BGPSec, not only do we have the advantages of this traffic engineering property, but so they are invisible in the... AS path, they are not invisible in the signature path. So you get all the good aspects of, okay, everybody connected to this route server is who they say they are. There's no unknown actors. We have full attribution for all routing information flowing through this rendezvous point. And we get to have the benefits of the route server not presenting themselves as a hop in the path for best path calculation. So I'm excited to take all the knowledge that we gained of the global RPKI route origin validation efforts and transform that into the next step. 
I, I also think it was brilliant that the, the original RPKI designers ended up with a situation where they said, well, let's first do origin validation because that's that's the simple one. And it turned out that that already was not simple at all because there were so many moving parts. But now all the infrastructure is in place. All the RERs support RPKI. There's a lot of deployments in terms of RPKI cache validators. Lots and lots of networks are accustomed now to using RPKI information to help clean up uh, BGP messages. So all that infrastructure is in place and BGPSec is built on top of the RPKI framework. It leverages all existing efforts that we put into place to make it possible for resource holders to make attestations or publish keys with very strong ties to specific AS numbers or IP blocks. So I'd say we've gotten this far. We have a beautiful framework, a beautiful foundation to continue iterative innovation on top of. And yeah, in the next few years, we got to work on BGPSec because that was the plan. And securing the internet's routing system is really a 20, 30-year journey. And we're, we're now a little bit past halfway, <laughs> but there still is uh, some of the journey to go. And yes, these, these things take years and that's okay. Knowing that it takes years will actually help us plan it better. <laughs> to, to me, some of the deployment of route origin validation felt like a fire drill. Like suddenly everybody was doing it. It was happening. Everybody was just flipping the button and jumping into the pool. And some people jumped in the pool and were like, oh my, it, the water is so cold. Help. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think we can take a lot of uh, the lessons learned, apply those to beach PSEC uh, deployments. And same for ASPA. Same for DOA. I think doing route origin validation was was the first step. And the first step is always the hardest one. And based on those experiences, I think we can make for a much smoother, better thought out planning of subsequent steps because we're not finished. Route origin validation is very important, but it's it's not a a solution to all problematic aspects in uh, interdomain routing. So work continues and uh, I I hope we'll, we'll all be part of that. Definitely. Uh, I mean, you can make a case for how RPKI and BGPSec, like all internet protocols and systems, are ongoing experiments. And like all new things, people will be risk-averse at the start, but will start to employ it as it matures, which seems to be the case with RPKI, given its rise in the past few years. Further, its extensibility and the foundational work that's gone into it only helps to make it more appealing to others in the future. And it's like, if we talk about timeframes, like this, this system will run for another 20, 30, 40 years, the internet will be growing in that time. And I think growth of the internet is only possible if we really anchor ourselves down into crypto. We cannot grow the internet much further with a, a whisper-based system based on plain text information. That makes it too vulnerable to either malicious or accidental mishaps. And I think the world deserves something that is stronger. So this push for cryptography everywhere in all layers of the internet technology stack, ranging from SMTP to innovations inspired by HTTP like Quick, And it's part of the natural evolution of these giant IT systems. And BGP is uh, lagging a little bit behind its siblings like DNS and and, uh, HTTPS. And that's okay. I mean, we maybe we are just slow movers, but <laughs> eventually we'll get there. And I think it's an awesome image to keep in mind that there is the physical network, 
the fibers that span all across the world, but there also is the cryptographic network, uh, the signature chains that, that also span all across the world. And one helps the other stay strong. I'm looking forward to the telegeography cryptographic maps coming out soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Job, it's been fantastic talking about all things RPKI. Thank you so much for taking time out to join us here on Ping. And if your premise is right, then we can expect to have you back on the show over the next 50 to 60 years. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Robbie. This was fun. And thanks to everyone who's made it this far. We hope you've also had fun listening. If so, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. If you'd like to learn more about RPKI, check out the link in the show description at our RPKI at APNIC portal which has links to useful deployment case studies and how-to articles, as well as hands-on tutorials and labs to help you practice configuring and deploying it. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.